David Halpin and Professor Andrew Gamble. Thank you for talking to the Cambridge Judge Business School podcast series tonight. We're here at the debate measuring national well-being. What matters to you? Perhaps if we begin by you, David, first, your director of the Behavioural Insights team at the Cabinet Office, well-being now firmly on the political agenda. Well, it's certainly across countries, a lot of interest in measuring it and what's its policy implications, so yes. And, and in, in terms of Cameron's speech, he came into office, people say it's now not just about economics and GDP, we're putting well-being and those other factors firmly into the measurement of our happiness. Um, is that, do you think, a big policy change in the sense that it's not just about economics anymore, it's about how we feel? Well, there are a couple of different things in there. Um, one is there's an agreement across a number of countries that there are limitations to what GDP does and does not capture. And there are a number of things which are reasonably well rehearsed now, but that doesn't capture well some ecological things about something comes to capital. There are classic examples around if you have a tsunami, but actually it drives up GDP on the, the way it's measured right now because your houses are destroyed. <laughs> that doesn't count, and yet when they're rebuilt, that does count. So there are a number of omissions from it, and one of them, as identified by Stiglitz and also identified by um, analysts in the UK, includes subjective well-being measures. Um, the next question, of course, is why would it be consequential? You touched on policy. Um, the, the sense is, well, first we have to see where this road would lead, but um, if you looked at a broader basket of measures when you're trying to think about progress, then are there some things that would lead you to put more emphasis on, such as relationships? And you talked about people having time to do the homework with their, their kids. Um, you know, the difference in extra hours commuting makes to our lives. These are very much, if you like, soft policy options. Do you think we're going to see them integrated into the mainstream politi political agenda more in the future? Well, um, the fact is at the moment there's often not enough data or information to use it in formal policy analysis, but... Um, as it comes through, it's not just about government using this data. Actually, it's for all of us to use it in everyday life. And that's the interesting, the interesting empowering aspects of it. If, you know, we have to make all kinds of choices about where we live and where we work. And, um, and it's fascinating and important for us to have more insight into, well, what will that mean? How will we feel? Will we be pleased with the decision that we made in a year or two or five years' time? And so it actually is a way of informing citizens themselves, so not just for government. And, and if we go to you, Professor Gamble, um, you said the debate is a very powerful one coming at the present time, and perhaps much of, lots of people might be feeling economically insecure and, and losing uh, their jobs. Why is it powerful? Well, I think because uh, um, all the political parties have become interested in well-being. I think what's new is, is as David says, the... Uh, the idea of subjective well-being. I mean, governments have always have always considered non-market factors in in the past. Um, what's uh, what's really new is actually trying to um, find some measures of happiness, measures of subjective well-being, and integrate them into into policy. And it it fits with a, a, a general search by governments to do more than just. A, um, a top-down process of, of policy formation. As, again, as David was saying, it, the, it, it's actually trying to develop forms of, of information 
which can be made available to citizens so that citizens themselves are empowered to become the agents. Um, but, but in empowering the citizens to become the agents, you know more about us. It could be interpreted, as you said in, in your talk, but of central planners interfering or governments interfering in our lives. Well, I think that's the, uh, that's the criticism that, that, that some people make of it. They see it as a, um, a, another way by which government, government gets another um, set of, of policies which actually come from, from the top. But I think that um, I think there's more things than that going on here. I mean, I, I, you know, obviously that is, a, 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 that is one risk, but the, um, I think there is a genuine interest in finding ways in which um, government can become more decentralised. And this, these sort of measures of, well, of subjective well-being, um, the point is that individuals are being asked to actually construct them, I mean, actually to tell uh, um, the people doing the surveys what actually matters most to them and that's the interest that the, 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 the additional knowledge that is gained from that is actually very useful to the individuals themselves it, and it's a way of a society actually understanding more about itself and therefore potentially adopting measures and, and behaviour which actually helps to uh, um, helps to improve well-being and that's that is a very, you know, it's, it's a challenging vision, but it's also really quite an exciting vision if it could be pulled off. But it's not a sinister 1984 vision in the sense people aren't going to talk about their ill-being and if politicians and political parties know more about us, surely they're going to use that information to get us to vote for them at the next <laughs> election. You know, it's a circular well, argument, isn't it? Well, the, 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 I mean, the, the, the safeguard against that is that the knowledge is widely available. Um, and, and clearly, if, if government was just collecting this knowledge secretly and then developing manipulative strategies, that would be very undesirable. So it has to be an open, uh, pluralist process. But if it's that, then you know, there are the, the safeguards are there. But, but David, at one time it might have seemed impossible that we would have had a behavioural insights team in, in the, the Cabinet Office. That shows how far this happiness and well-being agenda ha- has been, if you like, mainstreamed these days. Well, no, to be clear, the behavioural insight team does, doesn't mainly do anything on well-being. I mean, it's... Um, a lot of it is to do with most policy has strong behavioural components, be it whether we recycle or um, you know, whether we walk to school, whether you commit crime or whether you look after your health or not. And so that isn't just to do with well-being. And there are lots of insights that come from the um, psychology and economics which have strong um, policy relevance. And you might say nudging us to these better lifestyles in the future. In, in terms of the measurement, do you trust the, the measurements of well-being? And where do you think this debate is going to go in the future? Well, it's been for national statisticians to develop some robust measures, and that's partly the point. Also, to your question earlier about you know government manipulation, it's important that it stays independent from government, and um, and the data goes to the public domain. So, um, can it be measured robustly? I mean, the wider academic literature says yes, it uh, it is, and um, it looks like a lot of these kind of measures have been developed. They they match up with what other people's judgments of whether someone is happy or not um, or satisfied with their life. Um, so there's lots of evidence, and they, and they sort of behave in ways that you think they might do. So I think the measurement issue is perfectly crackable. 
And, and uh, Professor Gamble, do you agree with that? Have you got any concerns about this well-being debate? And where do you think it will lead to? Well, I don't, I don't think it's, you know, it's not, clearly not the whole answer for public policy. Um, but it, uh, it, I, I, think, I think where it, where it will lead is that uh, it, it, it does mean there's, that there will be a more intelligent conversation about public policy and about uh, um, some of the broader effects of, uh, of, of economic growth and of what it is that citizens most, most desire and what will make citizens... Uh, um, most happy. I mean, you know, Bentham talked about the greatest happiness of the greatest number, and the American um, Declaration of Independence talked about the pursuit of happiness. I mean, these are, you know, the, in that sense, these aren't new ideas. This is what um, modern Western culture has been about for a very long time, but we haven't always been um, very good at focusing upon uh, upon these things, so that. Uh, um, and other other factors have come to dominate. So, potentially, um, and and of course, the, the, the difficulty will always come that there will be there will be trade-offs, there will be hard choices. Um, things are never uh, are never straightforward. But the the um, the hope of people behind the well-being agenda is that uh, there will be more intelligent policy and more information available to citizens. And you're not at all cynical that a well-being debate and the measurement of all this at a time when people were seeing massive cutbacks, job losses, do the two or could, can the two comfortably sit together? Well, that's up to politicians, really. I mean, they have to show, they have to demonstrate that they can... Uh, they can have some hard-edged policies on well-being that actually do make a difference to people. So it's, if, if they just stay at, the, at, at a very general level and, and just choose to use the term well-being to describe um, uh, and, and any policy that they're uh, adopting, then, of course, it won't work. But So it, what it has to be is that they, they have to show that they're prepared to take some hard decisions in actually to uh, improve people's well-being and help help citizens to to do so well we'll let you have the final word david is that the challenge for the politicians now those hard choices and decisions and what might they be well it's clearly not an either or with economic growth i mean you have to deliver growth and so on but there are additional questions it certainly raises we have to make you have to make real choices about shall you spend more money on this or less on that and as far as it can help communities and governments and indeed individuals make those judgments, then that seems a good thing. OK, well, thank you both for talking to me tonight at the uh, Cambridge Judge Business School podcast series, Measuring National Wellbeing, What Matters to You. Uh, Professor Gamble, David Halpin, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.